Thank you, music team, for leading us before the throne. We're continuing our series uh, in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So if you would, turn with me there. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, You can grab one from the chair in front of you. There should be hopefully one in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one with you. Uh, Our passage today is going to be found on page 976 of that church Bible. If you've uh, if you've been with us now for a few weeks, uh, several weeks rather, we've been in in Galatians, and last week uh, we began applying the freedom of the gospel to our own lives. We, we talked last week about freedom. What is it that God frees us from, and what is it that God frees us to? And we heard that God frees us from the burden of the law, from the guilt of the law, that we no longer carry that penalty on our shoulders. We're free. And then what that does is it frees us to love and serve other people. Christ frees us to fulfill the law by loving and serving other people. So if you're in Christ, you're freed to actually become a servant of others. It's kind of the irony of the gospel. Now, you may have spotted a problem with that. You don't love your neighbor. You want to know how I know that? Because I don't love my neighbor. Not near as much, anyway, as I love myself. And yet, that's what Jesus says. It's what Paul says. What was your first thought when you woke up this morning? Were you excited? Motivated about having a whole day in front of you to love and serve other people? Were the needs of others the first thing to rush into your mind this morning when your eyes open? You're probably better than me, but that wasn't, that wasn't true of me. To my shame, it's not the first thing that I thought of. So if this is what we are to do with the freedom that Christ has given us, and that doesn't come naturally, then where do we get the power to do it? And that's going to be the theme of today's passage. Galatians 5, 16 through 25 is what I'll read today. The bulletin says 26, but I'm just going to read through verse 25. Paul writes this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Because these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, those who make a practice of doing such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And while the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help in applying and understanding and applying his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us to wonder what life is all about. You have not left us in the dark as to what the good life is. Lord, I pray that what we read in this passage would be sweet to us, would be beautiful to us, that we would see in these words a life that we want and that you would bring glory to your name by producing it in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. That's what my phone sounds like when I get a text message, but I guarantee you it wasn't my phone because it's over there and it's silent. That was said without judgment. I'm just saying it wasn't my phone. Okay. All right. I would love for you to get out something to write on. You can use the blank spot in the bulletin. You can use a, a notepad or a journal or a piece of paper, but get something to write on and something to write with. And I want you to answer this very simple question. What is God's will for your life? Doesn't have to take long. One or two words ought to do it. I'll give you a second. If we were really on it, we'd have like Jeopardy music to play. Don't play any. It's okay. What is God's will for your life? What does he want for you? Another way to ask that question. And here's another question. You can answer it next to that one or underneath that one. No need to write a novel or a paragraph or a sentence. Just one or two words. What do you want for yourself? So you have on that page the answer to two questions. What does God want for you? And what do you want for yourself? Now be honest. Don't give me the don't, don't give me like the Sunday school answer, okay? Be honest. What do you no, pretend that nobody else is going to see this. Nobody else has to see it. Don't cheat, Gary. Don't look at somebody else's paper. All right. What uh Honestly, what do you want for yourself? And do those two things line up? Now, you may not know this, but the Bible actually tells us what God's will for our lives is. It's very clear. He says it very simply in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He says, for this is the will of God. Are you ready? You may have been agonizing over this question your entire life. What does God want for my life? Here it is. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's a fancy word. It means your growth in holiness. What God wants for you is holiness. 
Now, we need to answer the question, what in the world is holiness? What does it mean to grow in holiness? It means that you are renewed in God's image. That you become more and more like Him. Which means you are enabled more and more to die to sin. Those things which are opposite of God. And to live in righteousness. Those things which conform to His character. That's what God wants for me and for you. To basically become like we were meant to be. To become a better human being. Now, even if you don't believe in Jesus, even if you're not a Christian, doesn't that sound like a good thing? Doesn't it sound like a noble goal to become a better person? That's what Paul describes. If you look at these two kinds of people that Paul describes in this passage, I don't know that many of us would look at that second list what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. I don't know many people, Christian or non-Christian, who would look at that list and say, eh, nah. I think most of us, I think most of us anyway, would want those words to be true of us. We'd want those things to describe us. So the question is, how does that happen? Because that's what holiness looks like. Now, so you may have you may have a bad definition of holiness. You may hear the word holy, and you think of that that self righteous kid in school who always followed the rules and always ratted you out and wasn't very kind. You may think of that person. That's not holiness. You may think of holiness as a certain list of practices, things that need to be done. But that also is not holiness. What Paul describes here, what he calls the fruit of the Spirit, that, that's what holiness looks like. That's what a holy person is. So how does that happen? Now, normally we think about life hacks, right? We think about uh, maybe adopting some new habits that modify our behavior. Wake up earlier. Eat less sugar, exercise more, watch less Alabama football. That will help you grow in holiness, by the way. And if you think about it, that's actually been the response of the church throughout history as well. That we tend to do lots of things, we tend to focus on things that modify outside behavior. Uh, For instance, coming up in the spring, right? Historically, there are certain churches uh, that practice a season called Lent. And what do you do during Lent? For a a brief period of time, you put some bad behavior off. It doesn't even have to be a bad behavior. Maybe it's just a habit you don't like. You stop doing it for a season. And then you pick it back up again when the season's over. That's typically how we think about personal growth. But that's not what Paul describes here. Now, there is power in habit and in discipline. Those are good things. But as singer Derek Webb said a number of years ago, we are crooked deep down. So anything that only modifies our behavior on the outside really doesn't bring lasting change, really doesn't accomplish true holiness. The truth of the matter is, I need a whole lot more than just a new coat of paint. 
And that's most of what we settle for, right? Just getting a new coat of paint on the existing house. What God wants and what God is in the business of doing is a total renovation. He's changing us into something completely different. And that can be a painful process, but he plans to remake us from the inside out. And here's how he does it. And this is kind of the main point for today. The Christian life is not a legal life. And what I mean by that is that the power of the Christian life is not found under the law. That doesn't mean that the Christian life is a disobedient life. Far from it. The obedience of the Christian, or maybe we should say the obedience of the spirit-led life, runs much deeper than the law. And so that's our description. The Christian life is not a legal life in the sense that it's defined by laws and doing those laws in order to get better, but rather it is a life led by the Spirit. And as we're going to see, when you're led by the Spirit, that actually works obedience deeper down into your heart. You see, the law cannot empower us to keep its demands. All it can do is make demands. We are not empowered to keep it by the law. So we need something else. We need a power at work within us so that we can follow God freely and gladly. That's what Paul is getting at in verse 18 when he says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. To be led by the Spirit is to have the power to truly walk with God. So Paul points out three things here, or at least there are three things I want to draw attention to in this passage. One, he talks about this constant battle. Two, he talks about the works of the flesh. And then three, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Let's talk about that constant battle. Look again at verse 16. Paul writes, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, because the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, because these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you are a Christian this morning, if you are in Christ, Paul is saying that you have two natures at war within you. That there is a civil war taking place inside of you. Two natures that are opposed to each other. The one he calls the flesh. And this doesn't just refer to our bodies. It refers to our sinful natures. It's the old you. It's the leftovers that existed before the Spirit came in and caused you to be born again. It's still there. And then the other nature that's present within you is the Holy Spirit. Not, not a power outside of us, but actually God himself living within us. We learn from Scripture, from Jesus in John 3, that it is the Spirit who causes us to be born again. You cannot believe in Jesus unless you are born again by the Spirit. And when that happens... You become a new creature. And now, both of those natures fight inside of you. Uh, K.O. read from Romans 7 earlier. Paul elaborates on this battle 
uh, in Romans 7. And I wonder, do you resonate with what Paul said? That the good thing you want to do is the very thing you end up not doing. And the evil thing that you really don't want to do is the thing that you keep on doing. Maybe you felt like, gosh, I I probably need some counseling. I feel like I've got multiple personality disorder here. I've got two, you know, everything that I want to do, I don't do. Everything that I don't want to do, that I do. Paul says, that's that's the war for every Christian. That it's the flesh and the spirit opposed to one another. They both desire, they want opposite things. And that battle keeps you from doing the thing that you want to do. So, how do we identify what is the flesh? We're going to come back a little bit and talk more about this struggle and how we gain freedom from it. But before, well, not really gain freedom from it, but how we persist in it. Uh, Before we do that, how do I identify the flesh? How do I identify what comes from the spirit? And Paul tells us uh, both of those things. First, he tells us what the works of the flesh look like. He says in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. My sister-in-law sent us some pictures yesterday of a tree in her yard. Around the base of the tree, right on where the roots would be, there are these large, deep red mushrooms growing. And then the tree itself is, is growing leaves, but they're shriveled, ugly-looking leaves. And then the, the kicker was this. She took a video. She went out to the tree, and she grabbed a hold of the trunk, and she pulled it and pushed it, and it just wobbled back and forth. What would be your assessment of that tree? It's not a bad, It's not a good tree, right? That tree is on its way towards death. Well, in the same way, Paul says... The works of the flesh are obvious. They are evident. It's obvious when someone is working out of their sinful nature. And then he gives us a list of what those things look like in verses 19 through 21. It's not an exhaustive list. There are other lists like it in the New Testament. They include some of these things. They don't include other things. But it's Paul says things like these. People who do things like these. And this list here shows us how we misuse four areas of life. Sex, religion, relationships, and substances. In Paul's case, drinking. Alright? Four areas of life that our flesh misuses and mishandles. Now, we don't really have time to go through each one of these words and unpack them, but there are a few things that I want you to notice. One, living out of our flesh, sin hurts our relationship to God, our relationship with others, and our relationship with ourselves. Right? You can look at each, each one of those areas that this list addressed and there is, there's a destructive capability towards God, towards others, or towards myself. And so we learn that sin is destructive. Even good things are used 
improperly. And when they're used improperly, it's destructive to us and to others and to our relationship with God. I want you to notice this also, that the works of the flesh are not just external behaviors. There are some external behaviors here, but there's also internal character flaws. So, for example, sexual immorality and jealousy are on the same list. Both are ugly products of the flesh. So, what that means is you could be a sexually moral person. You follow the letter of the law when it comes to your sexual conduct. But if you make a practice of jealousy, and that's what Paul says in verse 21, those who keep on doing those things, those who kind of make a regular practice unrepentantly following this way of life, you could be a sexually moral person, but if you make a practice of jealousy, Paul says you will not inherit the kingdom. That's pretty stark. Because each one of us tends to have certain sins that we favor. And usually it's the ones I struggle with. And then we have certain sins that we're extra judgmental of. And usually it's the ones that you struggle with. So I'll give myself a pass while gladly condemning you. And this list doesn't really get us off the hook. Religious people may condemn sexual immorality and drunkenness, but practice strife and jealousy. Non-religious people will condemn strife and jealousy, but champion sexual immorality as sexual freedom. The truth of the matter is, God will condemn both if you remain in them. That's what he says in verse 21. He says, those who practice things like these, who make a regular practice of doing things like these, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a stark word of judgment that covers everyone. To the right and to the left. Paul then tells us how to identify. So that's how we identify the works of the flesh. What about the spirit-led life? What he calls the fruit of the spirit. He makes a list in verses 22 and 23 of things that are opposed to the works of the flesh. That are opposite of it. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, against such things there is no law. If you practice such things, if you live in such a way, Paul says, there is no law that will condemn you. Now, we could, uh, again, go through each item on this list, and that would be helpful, but that would be its own sermon series. It would be a sermon series all by itself to go through each one of these lists. In fact, one of our elders... Steve Tipton actually does a very helpful study through the fruit of the Spirit. Um, I commend it to you. It's worth, uh, it's worth time going through and thinking about each one of these things. But here are a few things I want you to notice. First, as you look at this list, I want you to notice that fruit is singular. Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is. He doesn't say the fruits of the, the, fruits of the Spirit are. Why is that? Because Paul does not understand how grammar works? No, I think it's intentional. I think there, there are two possibilities, and I think they can both be true. 
One, uh, he's saying there are not many fruits of the Spirit, but one fruit. And it can mean this, that love, and some translations actually put it this way, love is the fruit of the Spirit, and that all of the other virtues he mentions flow from it. And you can see how love would connect to each one of the other items on this list. This makes sense for the following reasons. Right? This word for love refers to that self-giving love, the love that considers others as more important than myself. It's the way that God is described. It's his preeminent characteristic. John tells us twice in his letter, 1 John, in chapter 4, he tells us twice that God is love. Same word. God is love. Love, same kind of love, is also the preeminent command that Jesus gives his followers. In the Gospels, uh, particularly in John 13 and 15, some of his last words as he shares a meal with them, the Last Supper, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. Even as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. So the love of God, who he is, is meant to be reflected in his people, who we are. It's his preeminent characteristic. It's our preeminent command. God's love for us is what motivates us or should motivate us to love others. In fact, John, going back to John, 1 John, is so serious about this. He says that if you do not love others, you probably don't understand God's love. You do not love God. Ouch. So love, needless to say, is pretty important. We could say that love is the chief Christian virtue. Paul does a great description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. I recommend that you go take a look at it this week. And so it's possible that love is the fruit of the Spirit and all the other virtues flow out of it. Another reason fruit could be singular is that all of these virtues, everything on this list, grows at the same time. Like, like grapes, it's a cluster of the same kind of fruit. And so what you may notice is when you read through that list, you've identified some things that you, already, that you really don't struggle with. You may identify some things on the list that are you. For example, um, you may be a gentle person by nature. You, gentleness or meekness, that may describe you. And yet, what that's probably describing is not the Spirit's work in you, but just your temperament, your personality. Right? If all of, these, if all of this fruit grows at the same time, then it... All of this means that I will be, I will have love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness. So if I'm good at gentleness, but I'm bad at faithfulness, that means I don't hold on, I'm not very loyal to my friends or I'm not very courageous in the face of opposition, then that's probably not a fruit of the Spirit. It's really just a mark of my temperament. But another thing I want you to notice is that Paul calls these good things fruit. And he calls the bad things works. He, he contrasts works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Why? What's the, difference between, what's the difference between works and fruit? Well, work 
is work. It's a strenuous activity on the part of the one working. And in this case, right, it's my flesh working to produce all kinds of terrible things. But fruit, spiritual fruit, grows through what Francis Schaeffer, the theologian in the 20th century, he calls, uh, he calls spiritual growth, he calls it active passivity. Now, obviously those two words don't often go together, right? That seems like an oxymoron, but, this is, but, but think about it for just a second. Think about a peach. Think about the way that a peach grows, Would you say that it's active? There's certainly a lot of activity going on in a peach as it grows from a bud into a flower and then into full fruit. There's a lot of activity internally going on. And yet, we wouldn't necessarily look at a peach and say that it was working. There's a lot of activity, but the peach isn't growing on its own strength. It's not striving, necessarily. How do we know? Because the minute you disconnect it from the tree, its life source, all that activity begins to stop. And eventually it will rot and die. So, in that sense, we would say that a peach is passive in its activity. It's growing, but not on its own. And that's how the Holy Spirit produces life In the Christian. That when we abide in him by faith, what Schaefer calls the open hand, trusting him for his work, that's how fruit grows in us. That's how the Holy Spirit produces holiness. Schaefer uses the example of Mary, the mother of Jesus. God gives her a promise. He tells her that uh, by the power of his spirit, uh, he will cause a baby to be Uh, to be conceived in her womb. Now, how does Mary respond? She certainly has a couple of options. She could say, no, thank you. I I, I really don't want to do that. That sounds really terrifying to me. I am not going to go down that road. She could reject God's promise. And yet, what does Mary say? May the Lord's will be done, right? She receives the promise, she puts her body in his hands, and she trusts him to do his work. Now, did she do the work? No. He was active in her. She was passive in receiving the work of God. That's how we bear fruit. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 15. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what does that look like? In the couple of minutes that we have left, what does it look like for us to cooperate with the Spirit's work? What is the active part of that passivity? Paul tells us to do two things in this passage. In verse 16, he says, walk. And then in verse 24, he says, excuse me, in verse 25, he says, keep in step. 
Now, walk refers to just kind of ordinary life. Walking, moving, the Bible uses that to talk about your way of life. Keep in step is a different verb. Uh, I always think of uh, marching band. That, that's what I did in high school and in college. Right? In order to keep in step, right, there, was a, there was a beat that the drum was beating, and you had to march in line with that beat. So it means to submit to a rule, to follow a certain beat. And so what Paul is saying here is not only we walk by the Spirit, but we also, if, if we live by the Spirit, we also have to keep in step with the Spirit. We've got to follow his drumbeat. And I want you to notice, he tells us to do two things, but then those two things are done in someone else's power. Walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. How do we do that? Well, it's not mechanical. It's not a mechanical process that's always guaranteed a certain outcome. In fact, if anybody says, no, this is the process by which you grow, you ought to kind of look at them a little squint-eyed and be like, I'm not so sure. Think about how fruit grows on a tree. There is a process, but it's not mechanical. It's organic. It's uneven. Some fruit ripens before other fruit. Some trees are ready before other trees. If the weather changes, the growth rate changes. There's not enough water. If there's not enough light... All of those things impact and create uneven growth. And that's, that's the spiritual life. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. It won't be an even pattern of growth. But we can say that there are means of grace that the Spirit uses to cause His fruit to grow. Kind of like a fruit tree uses soil, water, and sun. And in our case... The means of grace that the Spirit uses are word, prayer, and the church. The church is kind of like the soil. Uh, assuming that we're studying the word and we're praying on a regular basis, we're encouraging one another, right? We engage in word, prayer, and in the church. And ideally, over time, fruit grows. Now, your rate of growth won't look like the person next to you. And that's okay. The important part is that we walk by the Spirit and we keep in step with the Spirit. All right. There's a lot more that we could say here, but I want to close uh, so that we can pray and then head to the table. We sang this morning that uh, in, in that Martin Luther hymn that we sang it to prepare for worship. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. The way that we grow in the Christian life is by coming to Jesus with the open hand of faith and trusting in Him. We have to constantly reflect. Look at what Paul says in verse 24, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You've, uh, you've watched those cartoons before uh, where the, the angel and the devil, you know, there's a big decision that comes up and the angel pops up on one shoulder and the devil pops up on the older sh other shoulder and, you know, they, they argue. 
Maybe you've heard the, uh, the old Native American tale about two wolves. Uh, grandson asks his grandfather about this internal struggle he feels, and his grandfather says, well, there are two wolves inside of you. And, and the grandson says, well, which one wins? And the, grandson, and the grandfather says, whichever one you feed. Every person on the planet has some level of moral conflict, right? You've got a conscience given to you by God, so there is that battle. But what Paul's describing here is very different. And it's different in at least two ways. One, in those, in those stories, the, the two wolves, the two angels, right? You have, a, you have a good voice and a bad voice, and you're the free agent in the middle who gets to choose between the two. In the Christian story... You have two natures in conflict, but they're both you. And you're being torn by both of them. So in that sense, the conflict is a lot more intense. It is a fierce battle. But here's the other reason that the Christian story is better than the other two. In the Christian story, you're guaranteed victory. It will be a long battle for most of us. It will be a tedious battle. It is hard to war against the flesh. And yet, the Bible tells us that little bit by little bit, the battle will be won. Victory is assured in Christ. And that is where our hope rests. And if you're not in Christ this morning, I would invite you to consider that kind of life. Consider, consider the life... Not where you're stuck fighting between your good impulses and your bad impulses. But consider the life that Jesus offers. A life of eventual victory. Where you become the kind of person that Paul describes here. A person full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Who do those verses describe? They describe Jesus. And what Jesus wants is to make you more and more like him. And that's a beautiful thing. Amen. As we pray, our theme verse, uh, we pray the first Sunday of the month uh, for ourselves and for our families. And so our theme verse today is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Pray that we would trust in the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understanding. How, how great that that, uh, that lines exactly up with what we just talked about. That the way that we grow in holiness is by leaning not on our, understand, our own understanding, but in trusting God. So let's, let's pray together now. Our gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for being more committed to our growth than we are. Thank you for working your holiness in your children. God, I pray that we would walk by your spirit, that we would keep in step with your spirit. Lord, would you help us right now to identify those vices with which we struggle Help us to repent, to turn from those things. 
Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us the death that they bring? Whether that's in our relationship with you or to ourselves or to others. Would you bring those things to mind right now so that we can turn from them? And then, Holy Spirit, would you work in place of those vices, your virtues? Would you work the fruit of the Spirit out in each one of our lives? And, Lord, would you help us to trust in you with all our heart, to not lean on our own understanding, but to acknowledge you in all our ways so that you would make straight our paths. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite the elders to come down.